Transition Radio from San Diego, exploring the world of change with you. Are you ready to take your life to a new level? Join transition coaches and best-selling authors Paula Shaw and Kendi Foster as they explore strategies to navigate changes in health, relationships, money, career, and so much more. Get the information and tools to make your life smoother, easier, and more productive. And now, your hosts, Paula Shaw and Kendi Foster. And welcome to Transition Radio. This is Paula Shaw here with my co-host, Ken D. Foster, and we are so excited to be here with you today. We are. Isn't this a beautiful day in San Diego? Uh, it's it is. A little, little overcast on the outside, but the inside weather in here is amazing. And freezing as always. <laughs> we call our studio, by the way, Ice Station Zebra, because it, it has been made clear to us that the well-being of the machinery is more important than us freezing. Well, so. we could always put a coat on, I think is what they said. Yes, that's it. And we do. So we do. those of you who are with us live streaming will always see us dressed rather warmly. So Ken, we have an exciting show today because we're talking about transitions to save the sea. And the ocean is so important in, in what's going on in our world today. And I think that um, this is going to be a really important show with our guest, Don Kent. But let's kick it off as we are going to kick off every show for the next several weeks with a reading from your new book, The Courage to Change Everything. Thank you so much, Paula. And uh, yes, I have a, a new book coming out, The Courage to Change Everything, Strategies and Wisdom to Transform Your Life One Day at a Time. It's taken me about six years to uh, really research the principles and the um, uh, wisdom that I wanted to put in this book. So today we're going to kick it off with a little reading, and here we go. You are on a courageous journey called life. Life always comes with choice. You get to choose your journey and take full responsibility for what shows up. The journey is set up with losses, hurt, hopelessness, emotional pain, hardship, challenges, and distractions. There's also love, pleasure, and some happiness to help soften the journey. But don't be fooled. The journey's there for a reason. You will either evolve, which will lead you to permanent victory in life, or not, in which case you will be given another opportunity to try again. To have a successful journey, you will need to remember who you are and how powerful you are. Daily, you must connect with wisdom and love. In this way, you will be able to tap into your intuition and be guided on how to overcome all challenges that show up. Also, you'll need to be totally honest with yourself and determine which qualities you will need to develop and change along the way. I think this ties directly in with exactly what we're talking about today, making choice mm -hmm. to uh, making right choices to change the way that we treat our environments, uh, especially the oceans, which we're talking about today, mm -hmm. and how if each one of us takes full responsibility for what's going on in the environment, right? Then we can make changes and permanent lasting changes and really um, pass it on to our further generations uh, an ocean that we'd like to pass on, not a polluted, messed up environment that we have in many places around mm -hmm. the world. You know, I, I think a lot of people don't realize how much the ocean does impact the entire ecosystem. 
You know, it supplies food we eat, the air we breathe, the water we drink. Even though we don't drink directly from the ocean, it's because of the ocean that we have the water that we drink. And it's the planet's life support system. It's kind of like we have to save it. We have to do right by it. And, and there, in many places, especially some other countries, there isn't the same consciousness we have about taking care of the ocean. And so that's why I really love what Don Kent is going to share with us today because the Hub Seawell Research Institute is all about trying to preserve and protect the marine life and the oceans through scientific research. Absolutely. And, and it, you know, as you were mentioning uh, about the, uh, the ocean, <clears throat> you know, it covers 70% of the Earth's surface, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the ocean contains about 97% of all the water that's on the planet. Wow. And the ocean <laughs> plays a, star, a starring role, really, in whatever mm-hmm. happens to the environment, which is what you're saying. So this is uh, an important piece. And what's been happening in our oceans is, of course, we've had overfishing, which you and I were talking about, exactly. down in San Felipe, where the, uh, the government finally came in and uh, stopped the, uh, the yeah. net fishing down there. Because, um, of course, as we all know, net fishing doesn't just collect the fish that they're after. It collects many innocent marine animals like dolphins, like whales, like seals. You know, a lot of those that are not the target of the fishing. But if a net isn't selective, and so, and these nets are so easy to get tangled in. I actually got my foot tangled in one trying to pull it up, way up off the beach so it wouldn't go back out into the water. That's interesting. A lot of us have gotten uh, tangled up in those nets. I've know I've had fishing lying around me and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here's here's the, uh, the statistic. In the past 50 years, we've eaten more than 90% of the world's big fish. The bluefin tuna, big marlin, and sharks have all been fished faster than the ocean can replenish them. Mm. And this is becoming especially worrisome when we consider that 75% of the human population is dependent on seafood as their main source of food. Wow. Right? Which wow, is what happened. Wow, that's much bigger than I expected. Yeah, yeah, which happened down in San Felipe. The government had to shut it down. And, mm-hmm. and that's happening in lots of parts mm-hmm. of the world, which is, which is great. Um, but, you know, we've got a long way to go. We, we do need to figure out new ways to, you know, like you, we were talking before, there's a balance between the human needs and the needs of our environment mm-hmm. in our, in our uh, fish, in our animals, you know, in exactly. those Yeah, because like in San Felipe, now, yes, they are protecting the vaquita, this fish they were really worried about, but there are a lot of fishermen who have no work. So finding the balance between the human problems and the echo problems, that's not easy to do. It's not. And, you know, the other, the other issue that uh, we have going on right now, it's a big issue, is reef destruction, the dead zones. Mm-hmm. Did you know, Paula, that uh, since 1980, we've lost half of the world's coral reefs? Half of them. Wow. So we still have time to save the remaining 50%, but it really is going to take some effort on all of our part, okay? There are people that obviously are conscious in, in doing the right things mm-hmm. around it, but we also <clears throat> have, those people have to take responsibility, right. in my estimate, to help those that aren't conscious. Mm-hmm. We need to get the word out. This show, if you're listening to this show, I hope you'll send this to some of your friends. 
put it, a, you know, uh, like us on Facebook, like us on Google Play, uh, get it out in the world because this is an important, uh, important show. Another huge problem is what they call ghost fishing gear. Mm. And ghost gear, get a load of this, Ken, 640,000 tons of ghost gear is left in the ocean every year. This is nets and those kinds of things that get left behind. Fishing those hooks. nylon nets floating around. They're right. death traps. Right. Traps. For right. some of the mammals, the fish, you know, ones that are just innocent bison, turtles. Mm. And even birds get caught in them when they land on the water if they get their feet caught in those nets. And the nets, a lot of them float. That's what I noticed in Mexico. They actually attach them to styrofoam. So they're floating. So the birds on the surface can get caught in them as well. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, speaking of styrofoam, um, you know, we got challenges of, of in, with our plastics uh, going into the ocean, Ooh, fish yes. reproduction challenges, mm. um, you know, um, plastic bags, uh, oil, pesticides, you know, almost all the waste we produce on land ends up in our oceans. Oh, in fact, we're putting hundreds of millions of tons of plastic and other trash into the oceans and leaving behind, um, uh, you know, like you just said, traps and things that kill the wildlife. Mm, it's a travesty. Yes. It really is. And we have to get conscious. And I think our guest today is going to take us a long way in learning about that. But before we bring Don Kent on, let's talk a little bit about our wonderful sponsor, Sherry Blair, your financial consultant. Because she has a special event coming up in March that right, we right here really Diego, want everybody actually. to know about. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's going to be at the San Diego Botanic Gardens, which is a beautiful, beautiful garden area. And it's being called Women, Money, and Beauty. Mm. We've mentioned before that Sherry is a specialist in helping women to get ahead financially and to be able to stand on their own two feet because... As she always says, a man is not, not a, financial a financial plan. plan. <laughs> right. So this is the coolest thing. It takes a lot event. of men off the hook when women take 100% responsibility yeah. for their finances, right? Right. And it, takes, and it empowers women. It helps them to uh, be, you know, step into their, to their magnificence right. and understand finances and yep. understand the choices and the strategies and, that they, they can make to really feel a sense of security in their lives. Yep. And you know, even when a man is a big high earner, I read an interesting thing that psychologically, if a woman is making no money at all and not contributing financially, it's kind of like having another child for him. It's an additional responsibility and it affects the dynamics of the relationship. Mm. Well, and I think there's a piece to that too. Men need to, um, men need to value women, right? And value mm. uh, their time, their energy and effort. Absolutely. And think in terms of if they had to pay for that, how much would that all cost, mm -hmm. right? I think there's Absolutely. a piece there too. But Anyway, Sherry's not going to talk about that piece on her no, financial seminar. No, she's not. She's going to be talking about creating an income that will last, um, discover, discovering current gaps in your retirement plan, empowerment strategies for finances, and she's offering free analysis to people who are doing this kind of thing. 
So it's going to be a great event for women, March 24th at the San Diego Botanic Gardens. And we'll be talking more about this in the weeks to come. We sure will. All righty. So put that date on your calendar now, and we'll be giving you a lot more information on it. And you can go to our website, transitionradioshow.com, to get a little more information on the time and place of Sherry's event. Absolutely. And coming up in our next segment, Don Kent the president and CEO of Hubs SeaWorld Research Institute. We can't wait to talk with Don. We'll be right back. We'll be back with Transition Radio and your hosts, Paula Shaw and Candy Foster. Would you like to help someone in need to move from poverty to prosperity? Stars of Courage, a 501c3 nonprofit, is looking for established life coaches with experience in education and career mentorship to build confidence and create clear paths to success. Join our team of experienced coaches in a wide variety of fields, equipped with warm hearts with a passion for lifting up those in need. Our Stars of Courage. Find out how you can make a difference at starsofcourage.org. That's starsofcourage.org. We're back with Transition Radio, exploring the world of change. And now, here's your hosts, Paula Shaw and Ken D. Foster. Welcome back to Transition Radio, where today we have a very special guest, Don Kent. And Paula's going to introduce him, but I want to just say this, that uh, Don has been working uh, with the uh, Hub SeaWorld Research Institute, I believe, since 1977. Hopefully I got that right. And um, we're going to be talking about uh, some of the issues that are facing us as um, we move into the uh, 2018 and uh, in, our, in our oceans, in our planet, and uh, some of the ways that uh, we can work to really... Uh, Help the uh, uh, the animals and uh, the sea life in this in this world. So, Paula, let's introduce Don. Yes, Don Kent is the president and CEO of Hub SeaWorld Research Institute, a nonprofit international marine research institute that is dedicated to ensuring that future generations experience the benefits of a healthy environment by gaining scientific knowledge and finding practical solutions to the most critical conservation challenges facing the marine ecosystem and species. As Ken mentioned, he's been there since 1977. He's an SDSU, a local boy graduate. Oh, so we am I. Love that's, that. that's love. I love that, <laughs> too. <laughs> and he has participated in numerous institute programs, studying gray whales, assessing noise effects on animals, minimizing killer whale impacts on fishing operations, and closest to his interest, the development of marine fish aquaculture. There's an interesting program going on, Dom, will tell us more about. But what I love about Hub's SeaWorld Research Institute is that they're all about applying scientific solutions to complex challenges facing our planet. So, Don, welcome. We're so glad to have you with us this morning. Thank you, Paula. Thank you, Ken. I'm, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Great. That's great. Well, you know, Don, um, you uh, you work for an organization that has guiding principles for workplace excellence, innovation, and accountability, um, especially in the applied uh, science and research to 
the study of uh, you know the uh, the environment and of course the animals in the environment. So tell me a little bit. How did you get into this? What uh, what? How did you do this? And how well, was the institute started? Why? Oh, okay. Uh, well, let's see. I'll start with how the institute started. Uh, <clears throat> four fraternity brothers at UCLA, uh, led by uh, a gentleman Milt Shedd, uh, had this idea for a, a marine park. Uh, down in San Diego, and mm-hmm. they came down here and looked at some space, and this is back before Mission Bay was really developed as it is now, and found a location and uh, decided to put the, the first SeaWorld on that site, mm-hmm. and the city was excited about it. And, uh, but uh, Milt was a, was a big recreational fisherman and had this huge conservation ethic uh, in his makeup, and he wanted to make sure that if there was going to be a research if there's going to be a zoological park with marine animals in it, there should be a research institute that conducted independent work that would study those animals and then apply what the what the scientists had learned back to conserving wild populations. Wonderful. And uh, he brought in uh, Carl Levitt Hubbs, who is a professor emeritus of marine biology at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And uh, Carl was very supportive of the program, and I was working at SIO at the time. Uh, and uh, uh, Carl was very supportive of the idea of a, of a nonprofit right next to the park. And so it was dedicated in Carl's name, Hubs-SeaWorld. And so it, our name sort of reflects the idea that we're, we try to do the absolute best in, in conservation and uh, management and respect for animals, which is engendered by the name SeaWorld, and then scientific excellence, which is in, uh, represented by Dr. Hubs's name. I started as a graduate student from San Diego State. I needed a marine laboratory to do my work in, and San Diego State didn't have one. So they formed a partnership with the Institute in 77, and uh, I became one of the first graduate students in the laboratory. And uh, I guess I was competent enough they hired me on later on. <laughs> and uh, I've, I've been here, well, I guess it's over 40 years now, and uh, worked my way up through the ranks. That's Good great. for you. And and so Hubs then is this research arm of the whole organization, right? You are separate entities. Am I do I understand that correctly? You're separate entities, but you collaborate on scientific research? Certainly. We're a, we're a separate 501c3 and we have members of the SeaWorld uh a management team on our board, but it's a very small number of them. And most of our board members are made up of uh representatives from the community and uh yeah we are a separate entity but we have access to their animals for conducting uh non-invasive research we uh we work with their education department to uh get the word out about the work that's done and we even have opportunities to have displays in the park to talk about the research that, that we do so we have a like an educational conservation oriented arm in SeaWorld next door and then they can rely on us to, to help them with any questions they might have on improvements they can make in animal husbandry and that sort of thing that, that can be answered by our scientists over here. Hey, Don, can you talk a little bit about the non-invasive research? Um, I think that's an important concept that uh, our listeners need to know about uh, your research. Certainly. Uh, well, there's a, you know, the, the types of things we can do is uh, we did a, an experiment uh, looking at um, what monk seals eat. So what we did was uh, SeaWorld in Texas had monk seals from Hawaii that were uh, 
part of a, a program that these animals were uh, in recovery and they were in the Texas park. So we used them to study uh, lipid profiles. We could actually feed them known type prey items like uh, crabs or lobsters or fish that have a very specific uh, uh, triglyceride uh, uh, footprint that can be tracked into the blubber of the of the uh, monk seal so the point is we could validate a field study uh, in other words we can go out and look at monk seals now and draw their their some of their blubber out and analyze it and see what it is they feed upon and these these types of techniques can only be uh, developed in collaboration with animals that are in a captive environment where you can go back and test the assay and then uh, learn what you can from it and then take uh, those, in the case of this, like the blubber samples and then use it to, uh, to see what the wild animals are actually foraging on. So did this, this, the, that study, the monk seals, did that come out of, uh, I, I remember an article of uh, uh, lots of monk seals uh, washing up on shore and they didn't really know the cause of that? Well, when it, the important thing to remember with, with something like a monk seal is this is an endangered species that lives primarily on the northern Hawaiian islands, and I'm mean, the islands that you and I can't go to. Uh, they're they're off limits to to most tourists. And um, but the concern is that are we are we protecting their habitat? Well, we don't know what their habitat is until we we have an understanding of what they're foraging on. Where are they going to eat? Uh, what are, what's what's the composition, the the makeup of their diet, and where is that diet? Where are those prey items found? And you you can't necessarily uh, follow up an excuse me a monk seal around uh, continuously. So we do satellite tracking on them, so we know where they're going, and then through these diet studies, we're then able to come back and say, well, they're at this location, and this is what they're feeding on. So those are the areas we need to protect to make sure those animals. Uh, aren't in direct competition with humans for food and or they're not going to get entangled in nets and so it, it isn't until we can't lock out the entire ocean but we can try to understand enough about these animals to make sure that we can take those parts of the ocean that are important for them and set them aside so we don't have an adverse impact on them you know don i I, this question does not come from me but i've heard people say this kind of thing out there so i'm going to throw it out to you why should we care? Why should we care what goes on in the ocean, what happens with monk seals? How does that impact me in my everyday life? Well, I, you know, I think it's, it's hard for a lot of us to really relate to um, what our evolutionary role in the world is. I mean, we all hop in a car every day, we flip on a light switch, or we go to the market and there's our food sitting there for us and we exchange money for it. But we don't really think about where that food comes from. and mm-hmm. we, don't, we don't really have an appreciation for it. And until we have a, an under, a better understanding on a personal level and on a societal level that there's actually a strings that are interconnecting all of us with the environment. Mm-hmm. And until we appreciate that if we yank too hard on this one over there, that we might have an adverse impact on the, on the whole structure of that web that's out there. You know, monk seals might disappear tomorrow, and it may not have a direct impact on us at all personally. But then again, we could also fill in the Grand Canyon 
And, you know, what, what's the loss of that aesthetically, mm-hmm. certainly dramatic and historically certainly dramatic. And I'd never want to see that. But the point is, is that each one of these things that we lose uh, takes a little bit more away from this beautiful planet that we live on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we just need to all develop a little bit more appreciation for uh, the wonder that these animals are. I, you were, I heard on the show earlier, you were talking about Tutuaba and, uh, and Vaquita down in the Sea of Cortez. I right. mean, the, when I first started becoming aware of the problem, they were talking about there was 300 Vaquita left. Now, this is a dolphin that lives only in the northern end of the Sea of Cortez. And yet it keeps getting to be a smaller and smaller group. And I think it's down now down less than 30 animals. Oh, my. And we don't know if we can save them now. Uh, and once they're gone, that's it. We're not going to get them back, whether it's lowland gorillas or white rhinos in, in Africa or, or least bells vireos in repairing habitat in Southern California. When they're gone, they're gone. And then we all become a little bit less than we were. Mm. And the real pressure to all this is the idea that when I was born, there was two and a half billion people on Earth. There's seven and a half billion now in my lifetime. We have three times more people on Earth than when I was born. Yeah, and we have some very real problems we need to look at. And Don, we need to take a quick break, but I really want to pursue this with you in just a moment when we come back. Great. We'll be right back. We'll be back with Transition Radio and your hosts, Paula Shaw and Candy Foster. Attention business owners, the feeling of being overwhelmed, stressed out, and facing difficult business challenges goes hand-in-hand with being an entrepreneur. But there are solutions, and it's time to explore the possibilities. You work hard as an entrepreneur. Give yourself the break you deserve. Ken D. Foster is the business coach for you. Ken has over 21 years of experience with leaders just like you, who trust to share what is truly going on in their business and that thing called life. You're invited to set up a free conversation confidential consultation with Ken. His wisdom, guided methods, and unique strategies will bring you to new heights and breakthrough obstacles. Visit KenDFoster.com to set up your free confidential consultation. It's time to achieve your dreams because you deserve a successful business and a balanced, happy life. Sound great? Find out how to make this happen. Visit KenDFoster.com. That's KenDFoster.com. KenDFoster.com. Is living in today's fast-paced world making you feel stressed and out of balance? Are anxiety, sleeplessness, depression, lack of focus, or weight gain robbing you of your relationship and your energy? If you're ready for change, you need to call Paula Shaw at Rebalancing You. Paula helps you identify and eliminate self-sabotaging thinking and behavior. Using a wide variety of mind-body techniques, she provides her clients with the most effective processes for their specific needs. To book a rebalancing session with Paula, call 858-480-9234. That's 858-480-9234. We're back with Transition Radio, exploring the world of change. And now, here's your hosts, Paula Shaw and Ken D. Foster. And welcome back to Transition Radio, brought to you by Sherry Blair, your financial consultant, And we are privileged today, aren't we, Ken, to be talking to Don Kent, 
the president and CEO of Hub Sea World Research Institute. And if you were listening in that last segment, he was saying some really beautiful things about the interconnection of all living things on this planet and how we have to develop a consciousness of caring because it's going to affect us all. It is affecting us all. And uh, as we mentioned at the uh, top of the show, some of the challenges that we're facing. Mm -hmm. Don, you were saying about the uh, Kita dolphin uh, down there, and they're down to 30, and, and we may lose them, but we may not lose them. You know, there, there are things that we are choosing to do to, to uh, you know, help that population. Uh, where do we go from here on that? Well, I think the, the major reason they're disappearing is, as was mentioned in the earlier segment, uh, because of gillnet fishing for Tutuava, which is a uh, mm-hmm. endangered species of fish very close to, closely related to our white sea bass up here in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And the driving force in, in taking the Tutuava out is that the air bladder is sold in China for oh, the yes. medicinal trade. And it's dried air bladder from Tutuava is worth $5,000 a kilo. Oh. So you have all this illegal fishing going on, which is <clears throat> capturing these vaquita dolphins as a bycatch and thereby, you know, reducing that overall population for this business reason. And those air bladders could be grown in Tutuava. We learned how to grow white sea bass decades ago. And we've talked to the Mexicans, and they've developed the capacity to grow Tutuava. So why don't we grow the Tutuava in cages and then harvest the Tutuava for not only for their flesh for the market, but also their air bladders for the Chinese medicinal trade and take all that bycatch pressure off of the vaquita. Mm. And that way the fishermen can grow a fish instead of catch a fish. You're fulfilling two different markets and you're taking pressure off of this endangered species. But we haven't learned how to do that yet. And it's estimated by the International Whaling Commission that, and I know you were talking about this earlier about ghost nets and fish right. pressure. Mm-hmm. It's estimated 600,000 marine mammals a year die because of, of fishing operations around the world. And it was Cousteau back in the 70s, sort of the father of, of ocean conservation mm-hmm. that said, we need to learn to farm the sea as we've farmed the land. And what he was getting at was, you know, we got to take pressure off the oceans. In our white sea bass program, we take white sea bass that we grow from eggs that we get from adult fish and rear them up to a size where they'll have a better chance to survive in the wild. And we release them. We're trying to bring the, the population of white sea bass back up closer to its 2 million level. It's now down to like maybe a couple hundred thousand fish. We're trying to bring it back up so it can be harvested more sustainably. But all the estimates on global production suggests that the best we're going to be able to do is a status quo in production from the ocean. That is, if we manage all of our fisheries the way we, we should, it'll provide maybe a third of our seafood demand. Right now, half of the seafood in the world is grown and half of it is, is caught. But in the future, it's, we have to double the supply of seafood that's cultured. So what we've learned how to do with white sea bass We need to take it the next step and grow them all the way to market size. We need to take the same thing and do it with red drum in the Gulf of Mexico. We need to learn how to grow more species in cages and in hatcheries so that we can now farm our food 
from the sea instead of relying on Mother Nature to produce it for us. And this has become a huge interest on the part of the, of the uh, federal government. And we have a, uh, we import 91% of the value of our seafood. And so all those jobs are going to other countries now. You know, I, ha- I have a question around that. Um, sure. You know, the, uh, the raising of, uh, of hogs, the raising of chickens, the raising of uh, beef. Um, you know, there's, there's wild uh, production and then there's the cage production that uh, seems to be um, going down a path that's not healthy either for the animal or the, um, or the, uh, the human that consumes that. Is that the same with the, the fish in the sea? I mean, do we need to have wide spaces, open spaces, kind of like you do down there at, uh, where you're growing the, the, uh, the bass right now? Well, really, that... what, what we think we need to do is be out in the open ocean. Okay. Yeah. We don't want to be, have these cages back inside bays. Right. We need to have them out in hundreds of feet of water depth with a quarter to a half knot current. And Southern California is ideal for that. Mm. And the idea with that then is the, the water uh, flowing through keeps the fish healthy. Mm. The nutrients that are produced by the fish are uh, diluted so quickly that no blooms occur, no blooms of algae occur. A lot of modeling's been done along those lines. And it's interesting that you, you bring up these terrestrial analogs, of the pigs and chickens and uh, cattle. It's, it's hugely uh, problematic and demanding for space and, and nutrients and water to grow terrestrial livestock for human consumption. Mm-hmm. Whereas with ocean fish, we don't need fresh water. And remember, we live in a desert here, so yeah. all the water that we use for agriculture comes from somewhere else. And we can, they, don't, uh, they don't need to fight gravity, mm. and they don't all need to sit on the, on the ground. They can, they can be in a cage and use the yeah. entire depth of the cage like a school of fish. Imagine cows all on top of each other. <laughs> so it's a lot more effective space-wise. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's a, a recent study done a few years ago by Conservation International and another nonprofit called World Fish said that aquaculture is by far the most ecologically uh, sustainable way to grow animal protein for human consumption. Far better than any terrestrial species and far more sustainable than commercial fishing. And, you know, I've got a question, Don, because we always see the, these signs in the market, farm-raised and wild-caught. And I think the common, the common thinking is wild-caught is better than farm-raised. It's healthier. That's, that's my healthier. common thought because there is, sometimes we think they're feeding them, uh, you know, food that they shouldn't be eating. They're, you know, uh, they're feeding them grains or things that wild fish might not eat, right? So what or, really is the scoop? I have well, heard some of the farms are really healthy, even healthier than the ocean. Oh, certainly. I don't know about healthier, but one of the things to keep in mind is that uh, fish, like any other animal, are what they eat. And mm-hmm. if you can find a source of protein that, that a fish can convert into fish flesh uh, that's palatable to the fish and take pressure off the fisheries because you're not catching little wild fish to feed farm mm-hmm. fish, mm-hmm. then you have a net benefit to the, to the environment. Um, Is that know, being done? The, oh, yes. Yes. Oh. I mean, uh, you know, we, we've developed diets for yellowtail 
that use no fish meal at all. They use soy-based protein or they use what's left over after you've filleted a fish. You can take uh, what they call the bi- the, the uh, uh, trimmings. Mm-hmm. We can take that and make it into a food and feed it to another whole fish. Get another whole fish out of the deal. Um, there's a lot of, of uh, practices that are already adopted in agriculture, like feeding chicken feathers to pigs. Mm. That's that's done because protein's hard to come by. Mm-hmm. It takes Mother Nature a lot of effort to make protein. So if you can make protein, or if you can use a protein that's normally going to a landfill and then turn it into another edible protein, then that's great. Think about the most... I, I guess my question with that, though, are all proteins the same? Are all, all proteins absorbed in the bodies of, uh, of, of humans or, or animals the same? Right. Well, basically, what you're, there are certain micronutrients that might be required in a soybean diet that wouldn't, wouldn't be required in a fish meal diet. But basically, what your body's doing when it eats a protein is it breaks it up into individual amino acids, then turns around and turns it into uh, kin protein. It turns it into the protein that your DNA says belongs in your body. So it takes all those building blocks apart and turns them back into kin. Mm-hmm. And so whether you're eating a, a, a cow or a pig or a, or a soybean, that protein's being turned back into what your body wants for protein. Mm-hmm. So this is being done, you know, and everybody recognizes need. And, and it's back to this idea that how are we going to feed the seven and a half billion people on earth? How are we going to feed the other two and a half billion that are coming in another 20, 30 years? Right. They say that we have to increase food production by 70% to meet that need of the next two and a half billion. If we did that with cows, we don't have the land to do it. We don't have the fresh water to do it. Any other species, we don't have to do it, but we have the ocean. And we can actually grow all the seafood. This is an estimate made by National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. If you had a land area or an area of the ocean the size of Vermont, mm-hmm. we could grow all the seafood needed in the United States. Well, since wow. the ocean covers 90% wow. of the mass here, that's not asking much, is it? No, we, we, got, we got the room. We got the room. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got the depth. That's an interesting point you made. You know, like you can't stack cows on top of each other, but fish Yeah, the average, the average the depth. depth of the ocean is two and a half miles. So we have some depth there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We're working on a proposal for a farm that will produce five times the amount of of product that's brought to the port of San Diego than is currently harvested from all commercial fishing in, Cal- in San Diego. Well, wow. that was going to be my next a, question on that. Yeah. How far away are we from this? Being well, able to on the per- deep farm. The, we, we have the technology now. We just need the permits, and that's what we're working with on the, with oh. the federal government and the community. Great. And do you also work on an international level, Don? Do I understand that you guys are working like with the government of Mexico and other people that are China. Well, certainly, we, oh, we have a great. our scientists uh, work in the Philippines and in the Middle East, uh, Arctic, Antarctic, around the world. Uh, but not only above the ocean, uh, but also in in uh, deep diving submersibles. We've that's, been almost every corner of the planet. That's the great. Corner. Don, Don, let me ask you this: Would you? Uh, I don't know if you have the time to come back on our last segment. Do you have some time today? Certainly, I don't have a phone call until. Uh, 1230, I think. Great. Then we'll be right back with Don Kent uh, from the uh, Hub SeaWorld Research Institute in just a moment. 
We'll be back with Transition Radio and your hosts, Paula Shaw and Candy Foster. There's a question many of us ask ourselves when we are grieving. When will this pain ever end? Life Transition Coach and Grief Recovery Specialist Paula Shaw wants you to know there is light at the end of the tunnel. In her new best-selling book, Paula gives you information and practical exercises you can use right away in your recovery process, including breathing methods, the emotional freedom technique, energy psychology work, and many other healing tools. Grief, When Will This Pain Ever End? Available now on Amazon.com. We're back with Transition Radio, exploring the world of change. And now, here's your hosts, Paula Shaw and Ken D. Foster. So, welcome back to Transition Radio, where today we're interviewing Don Kent, President and CEO of Hub SeaWorld Research Institute. Don, thank you so much for staying on for another segment. This has been fascinating. I do want to let the listeners know that they can get a hold of you by Googling Hubs SeaWorld or they can go to hswri.org to find out a lot more about the uh, nonprofit and what you're doing. Uh, what kind of research you're up to. So, And thank you to Sherry Blair, our financial consultant and sponsor. Always want to remember that. Yeah. Get Sherry right in here too, Don. <laughs> okay, so um, we're talking uh, a little bit about sustainability. I'm really excited about this mm-hmm. piece uh, with the sus- sustainability part. And, um, you know, I was kind of curious as to what are the organizations that uh, you're, you're bringing into that fold to be able to create a sustainable farm um, out uh, in the ocean off of San Diego? Well, we're working very closely with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Uh, we're working with the veterinary school at the University of California, Davis. Uh, we've we've uh, outreached to groups like World Wildlife Fund and the Nature Conservancy that are uh, helping develop sustainable practices for the industry. Uh, we want to be a demonstration for how this can be done, not only nationally, but internationally. And then expanding beyond that, we want to be the problem solvers for the new sustainable in- industry. We, we always use the best technology. People, There isn't some sort of line out there that says it's sustainable. It's more like um, the Olympics where the pole vaulter got to 16 feet. Now he wants to get to 16 and a half and then 17. You're always moving that up. And what's sustainable today may be improved upon a year from now Mm -hmm. by having a better diet or a a better species to work on. So that's where research will come back in and and make it work better and better. Um, One of the things I love about what you're uh, talking about here, though, is you're giving us hope. There's a bright future ahead. There are things that can happen. Is there ways that our audience could get involved with this? Is there anybody that needs to be lobbied or or <laughs> talked to, or do they need to just uh, you know increase their awareness? What do you suggest there? Well, um, we're a, we're a, as a nonprofit, we we don't lobby per se. We educate, but my suggestion would be that. Um, if you want to write to your congressman, there, there may be legislation introduced soon that would create a very uh, defined pathway to allow for permitting mm-hmm. of, of farming operations in the open ocean and thereby create 
new industry for the, the country, new jobs. I mean, I grew up in San Diego, and my wife grew up here, too, and we went to school with the kids that, whose dads worked on the tuna boats. Mm-hmm. Well, the tuna boats are all gone now. Mm-hmm. But we don't have, and the fishing industry is much smaller than it was. And so we're going to try to bring that back and demonstrate how we can have a sustainable seafood industry that isn't necessarily designed around uh, putting nets out there to catch fish, but rather uh, having a farming operation that grows the fish from, from egg all the way to market size. And that'll be a lot more sustainable than expecting Mother Nature to keep coming up with the protein mm-hmm. and keep the, the stocks high. And, and you were saying uh, a little while ago when you and I were talking in between segments that th- the operation that's going on now actually just takes the fish to about a 10-inch length and then releases them into the ocean to grow up in there, right? To try to build the, the stock back up. Think yeah. of it as, as you're saving for your retirement. And um, the idea being if we can build the corpus, the uh, founding population, the, the number of adult white sea bass, if we can build that bigger, mm-hmm. then it can start producing more juveniles and become self-sustaining again. Mm-hmm. But then back to that, that concern that even if it was back at its historic population, it's still not enough to feed us all. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so... Ultimately, what we're trying to do is the same sort of thing they did in the salmon industry. They originally started working on salmon to, uh, if somebody built a dam, you put a salmon hatchery in, release juvenile fish, those juvenile fish come back, and then you harvest them. And then finally, they figured out, wait a second, why don't we just put them in a cage, grow them all the way to market size, and then bring them to market. Now, there's been problems with that over time, and they've gotten a lot better at it. But 80% of the salmon in the, in the global market is now farmed. Mm-hmm. It's, never, it's never been out in the open ocean other than maybe in a cage. Mm-hmm. So where would the – I'm not a business person per se, but I understand there's this idea of supply and demand. What would happen if 80% of the supply of salmon went away? Could we all afford to have salmon for dinner? Mm-hmm. Right. And now we can have it every night if we'd like, and we can afford it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I always think there's a there's a um, you know it always comes back to ethics and values for me, and I think this is where the science comes in, um, which we kind of touched on earlier. But it's uh, you know there are ethical uh, farmers out there that are that are really doing what they can to create a product that is. Uh, I'm going to call it healthy and, you know, has vital life force in it and, you know, is, is sustainable in, in my mind. Um, and then there's others that are, you know, out for the buck and they're going to, you know, feed the lowest grade food to the, to the animals. And uh, we, as a result, we're going to eat that. And, you know, like you said, you, you kind of are what you eat, right? Whether you're a fish yeah. or you're a human. So how do we regulate that? I, I don't know if that's your area of expertise, but I, I know with the science, I think we need to bring that science in there so we know what's healthy and what's not healthy. Well, I agree. And, but right now, do we, when we import 90% of our seafood, mm-hmm. <laughs> how do we know how they're growing it? Good point. Yeah, great, and, great point. And if we're growing it here, then we know it's meeting our USDA, our FDA, and our uh, environmental standards, EPA, Clean Water Act, and all that. We know that we're following a regulatory pathway just like that that cow that we're eating Mm -hmm. in the market we know was was grown under USDA standards. It's just a different kind of livestock. Mm -hmm. And 
ultimately, sustainability isn't just about environmental protection. It's also about economic viability. If you don't have both economic viability and environmental uh, uh, preservation, then you don't have a sustainable operation. So, that, that's really important. I'm glad you said that because it's it's about you know putting like you're doing right now, growing the the small uh, sea bass to a certain size, then putting them back in the environment, plus creating the sustainable. Uh, I use sustainable, but creating the farming operations. Right. You know. And that, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, Don. No, uh, one of the things. Uh, go ahead and finish your point because I wanted to ask you a little bit about the whole educating arm of Hub's um, Sea World Research Institute. Okay. Well, my only, my final point on all that is we, we need to provide a new paradigm for the production of, of yes. food. Yes. We need to do it in a way that, that uh, the fishermen can embrace. They can go out and be farmers now uh, and supplement their income in a way that, that makes sure that, you know, they have a viable livelihood. Yes, well, I, I like that, and I, I would just call it a values-based paradigm. That's what I would mm. like to see, what okay. we're, we're associating with that. But Okay, go ahead. Yeah, we were talking earlier about that balance between people needing to survive and protecting the environment. It's, it's a lot, and, and I'm thrilled to see that there is a consciousness about that, creating that balance. And one of the ways that I saw looking at your website and doing some research that you guys also approach that is, through programs that educate children so that they're developing. I loved it that you brought up Jacques Cousteau because he actually was the speaker at my college graduation. And his show was my favorite show. And what I loved about him was he didn't beat us over the head with developing a consciousness about loving the ocean and the ocean animals. He showed us how beautiful they were and how wonderful it was. So it came from within us to love and to care. Well, I, I grew up in San Diego. I had SeaWorld, the Scripps Aquarium, and mm. San Diego Zoo. And I'm, I'm a marine biologist now dedicated to conserving wildlife. So it, if we don't give the opportunities to children to appreciate these animals, then they're not going to be worried about them. It's back to your very first question mm. about why, why does this matter to us? And we have one project called Sea Bass in the Classroom where we take some of our white sea bass and we put them in aquariums inside grade schools, either, uh, you know, upwards uh, as the oldest kids are in high school. And those students then rear those fish for several months, taking care of them, measuring their growth, you know, collecting data on it. And then they all come down here to the beach one day with their fish in a bucket and then release them into the ocean. Oh, that's beautiful. And oh. so the, each one of them gets a little bit of appreciation about why we need to be respectful of the ocean, why there's a problem, and what they can do about it. And hopefully we've, we've touched hundreds and hundreds of kids with this, and maybe a couple of them will be marine biologists. Mm -hmm. and if we don't put that bread on the water, so to speak, then they're all going to turn up being stockbrokers or something. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing wrong with stockbrokers, but we need guys to replace me yes and we, we need do. and, and, and we, we need that beautiful consciousness you're talking about that we're all interconnected and we all need to work together on this planet so we can all survive beautifully 
Don, thank you so much for being part of this. Uh, this, I have to admit, has been one of my favorite shows that we've done. It's, uh, it's inspiring and lightning, mm-hmm. and uh, it's very hopeful. Thank you for being part of this. Mm, thank you, pleasure. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Paula. Uh-huh. Thank you. So that wraps our show up today. If you'd like to find out more about Transition Radio Show, go to transitionradioshow.com or you can Google us, Transition Radio or Transition Radio Show. Please like us on Facebook and Twitter and let your friends know about this. This is important uh, issues that we're bringing in about transitions uh, in all areas, in our environment, in our health, in our businesses, in our careers, in our home life, so family life. So that's what we're about, Transition Radio. And if you want to learn more about Don Kent or... Um, Hubs SeaWorld Research Institute. Don't forget, you can go to hswri.org. And if you're so inspired, they have a donate button. You can help to keep this research going. Thanks so much for joining us. Wow, what a show today, Paula. Mm-hmm. Wow, it was great, wasn't it? <laughs> it was amazing. So welcome to the wrap-up of Transition Radio Show. Today we were talking about transitions to save the sea, mm-hmm. and our guest was Don Kent, President and CEO of Hub Sea World Research Institute. And, you know, there are so, this is a very deep subject that we talked about today, Mm -hmm. about uh, what we can do, first of all, to learn about the environment, to learn about some of the issues that we're facing in our environment. You know, we covered about uh, the overfishing of our our environment, the uh, reef destruction, the plastics, and and then we uh, really came up with some solutions around that. And one of the things that I was so impressed with when I even first met Don, and certainly today, is that <clears throat> this research arm, that, that what he was saying, how when um, the man who first had the idea for SeaWorld created that theme park, that place where people could go and enjoy animals, he insisted there be a research arm connected with it for the preservation of marine life, Mm -hmm. that there always be this emphasis. We don't always hear about that in the media, that they have this emphasis on protecting the ocean and the ocean animals. Well, you don't hear that in, you know, there's, uh, there's, this is an issue that we've brought up some issues today that have been pretty polarized Mm -hmm. in, in our media. We talked about farming Fish versus, uh, you know, creating sustainable farms. Right. Um, what it means, what is a, what is a, uh, uh, I use the word sustainable. Uh, what does that really mean uh, to our, our, not only our environments, but also to the food that we consume? Is it really healthy protein we're, we're consuming? Mm-hmm. Is it not? You know, we touched on some pretty heavy issues to mm-hmm. this, this, this show. And I think we dealt with a lot of um, certainly misconceptions that I've had and that I know a lot of people have had. And I loved what Don was saying that they don't keep these fish in cages for their lives. They just bring them up from eggs yeah, the sea bass he was to talking about. a size. They mm-hmm. can survive in the ocean, right. and then they release them into the water. Yeah. Well, he was talking, and that's one thing I really enjoyed about this conversation, because he was talking about um, erasing and uh, uh, replanting uh, the fish back into the environment to bring them up to 
uh, typical average levels of uh, fish in the ocean. And right. sea bass, I think he was talking about 2 million mm-hmm. um, fish yeah. in the ocean. We're at about 200,000 now. So we, we have a ways to go. Mm-hmm. But not only that, creating uh, farms out in the middle of the ocean, right? Mm-hmm. Where, the, where the water flows through, the fish have a healthy environment. Um, I, I just like that. I thought that was a good idea. Yes. And, I, and, there, and it's not only a good idea, it's an idea that's moving forward now. And it's an idea that works with the reality on our planet. He was talking about another two and a half billion people coming Wait, by under ni- the planet. By 2050, uh, 2050, another right. 2.7 billion people are projected to be here. And you were saying at the beginning of the show, 75% of the food that humans are eating comes from the ocean. Yes. And the good news is... That unlike the land where we only have the flat surface, mm-hmm. in the ocean we have depth. So you could grow, so to speak, 10 fish on top of each other right. where you can't do that with cows or pigs or chickens. Yeah. Or and as, actually, that's very natural to a fish, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there, a, yeah, lot, a lot of fish swim in, swim in schools. And so we're, we're looking at, uh, well, we, we as a collective society are looking at ways to really feed this 2.7 billion people mm-hmm. over you know that are coming on the planet which they say somewhere around 70 we have to increase increase food production by 70% to be able to meet that need yes. and you're right you know and i th- i think don is right you know are we really going to meet meet that with a finite area of land mm-hmm. or are we going to be able to go into the uh, the oceans where the average depth of the ocean is two and a half miles, right? Yes. That consumes ninety percent, ninety five percent of the land mass, mm-hmm. so to say, uh, the the mass of the planet, not land mass, the and, mass of the planet. You know, as we conclude this segment, I just want to say that the other thing that really touched my heart today was when Don talked about why should we care, right? You know. And why we care is because we're all interwoven. There's threads between every the air animals, the sea, the land. We're all connected in us. And if we don't care, none of us are going to survive. Exactly. So, you know, we encourage you to listen to the full show. Go to transitionradioshow.com or you can uh, Google us at Transition Radio or Transition Radio Show. And you can listen to the segment again, Transitions to Save the Sea. Thanks so much for joining us.